0: have a Bible there are baskets at the end of the row where you can get one Alright, so we've been walking through the book of Romans. First, how did y'all, uh, how many of you were here last week for the video? Oh, yeah. Okay. What did y'all think of the video? Crazy. Yeah. Yeah, just a little. Um, huh? Yes. Yeah, there, there is another video that um, Ray Comfort did, 180 the movie if you weren't here yeah 180 the movie is a um a youtube movie it's like 35 minutes by ray comfort he does street evangelism and basically talks about um abortion in 180 um and compares it to the holocaust in germany very interesting um he begins the video interviewing these pro-choice people and by the end they have switched their position (laughs) Um, to being pro-life because of the examples that he walks them through. And it's very interesting. And then um, last week they watched one called Genius. It's a new video by Ray Comfort. He again does street evangelism and uses the life of John Lennon to lead into the gospel. So it's very, very interesting. Um, If y'all weren't here last week, you can check those out on YouTube. They're free. Um, And uh, good videos, great questions that he asks, probing questions that I think everybody can use in evangelism. Um, did any of y'all hear anything specific that you really liked? Oh, yeah. Yes, that was very good. She was like a, essentially a Buddhist who was trusting in herself for salvation. And, and she, he said, you trust yourself. And she said, absolutely, I trust me to to get me to nirvana or whatever um and so he read a list of questions and he said how many animals did moses take on the ark and she said two and he said and what do cows no 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 how do you spell silk and she spelled it and he said what do cows drink and she said milk right and he said, well, Moses didn't take any animals on the ark. Noah did. Number two, cows don't drink milk, they drink water. And there were a couple other questions that he threw in there, but he said, you got those basic questions wrong, but you trust yourself to get you to heaven. And, uh, and she stuck with her answer. She was apparently very hard-hearted. <laughs> um, yeah, Jonathan? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: hmm
0: Yeah, yeah. He consistently does that to show us our own sinfulness and falling short. Um, so I hope y'all did get some questions out of that that you could possibly ask people. To help you in evangelism, to help you in share the gospel. Not so that you can like intellectually trump somebody or like checkmate somebody, but so that you can share the gospel with them, alright? So, uh, and, and that has something to do with what we're talking about, right? We've been in the book of Romans, going through systematically the book of Romans, and Paul in the book of Romans is talking about salvation by faith in Christ alone. Justification by faith not by works, right? And so he's had this constant argument with the Jews over the fact that it is not by works that you can do, but by faith in Christ alone. And then he goes on in chapters 2 through 5 and gives all these benefits of salvation um, by faith what comes along with justification by faith because they're wondering okay if it's not by keeping rules then what kind of measure do we have how do we know if we're going to get there and essentially Paul tells them this is how you know because you're secure in Christ okay like these are all the great benefits that come with justification by faith and the foremost being you're secure in Christ and in fact he he reaches this climax at the end of chapter 5 where he compares Christ and Adam and he said in Adam all die and all sin but in Christ many will be made righteous right and so Christ is the antitype of Adam okay and then in verse uh, let's see in verse 14 or 18 I'm sorry in In chapter 5, he says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men through Jesus. For as by the one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass or the sin, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord so paul reaches this great climax and says verse 20 so the law came in so that sin would increase but where sin increased grace abounded all the more and so he said no matter how much you sin the grace of christ abounds even more than that and then we get to chapter six because what is the first question everybody's going to ask If grace abounds all the more over our sin, then hey, let grace abound. Sin more. Right? Like, that seems to be in our sinful hearts what comes next. That's the question that's coming is, okay, well, if grace abounds where sin abounds, let sin abound. So grace can abound even more. And there were people who were claiming that Paul's gospel was a false gospel because of this very thing. There were Jews at the time, Paul's contemporaries, who were saying, Paul preaches a false gospel because essentially his gospel says, sin more. If grace abounds where sin abounds, then Paul's saying, you can just sin more. And so Paul answers their question rhetorically in verse 1 of chapter 6. Here we go. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Then in verse two, he says with an exclamation, by no means. By no means. In the Greek, this is the most emphatic use of the word no that a person can possibly use. Okay? So he's saying no. No, that's not the point. That's not the point that he's making. We don't continue in sin so that grace can abound. That is not the gospel that I preach. I'm not preaching, go out and sin more so that grace can abound more. I had a professor um, in Bible college who actually had a friend that he worked with at a hotel who was in this camp that believed, and not, not a literal camp, but of this mindset um, that believed that's what Paul was teaching in Romans 5 is that we should sin more so that grace can abound more if we want God's grace to abound and to truly reign then we should sin more so that more grace can come and so he lived that way he slept around with multiple women he partied every night he did as much sin as he could possibly do so that grace could abound even more That's not the case that Paul is making. And that guy was not a believer. Okay. Um, Because. Paul explains. Himself going on in in chapter 6. Why that cannot be the case. He begins the second half of verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." So Paul begins this long explanation of why this claim that the Jews were making and that people even today make was false. That he is not preaching a gospel that says go sin more. And it's based on three things that we see here in this passage. First of all is our passive power over sin. I say passive because it has nothing to do with you or with me. Notice in verses 2 through 4. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? You were baptized, meaning you didn't do it. It wasn't something that you have done. It was done by Christ. Now, when we say baptism, how many of you think of water? Right? Okay. So that's the symbol that we have for a spiritual baptism that takes place at the point when we put our faith in Christ Jesus. There's a spiritual baptism in which the Holy Spirit comes and indwells the believer. Okay? And we are secured by the Holy Spirit in Christ. The baptism that we experience in water is a picture of that. It is an outward picture of death, burial, and resurrection. Right? You go under the water, you come under up from the water and it is a picture of what has already taken place spiritually and what happened spiritually was not done by you it was done for you the holy spirit came and indwelt you it was passive you had nothing to do with it you have been baptized you were baptized you were buried look at verse four we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death burial is nothing that you can do for yourself right okay good i'm glad everybody agrees with that like you can't dead person can't bury himself and if they could that would be freaky okay so dead person doesn't bury himself this is passive so you were buried into christ's death in order that just as christ was raised from the dead by the glory of god the father we too might walk in the newness of life so get this Paul says, just like Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, you too are going to be raised or were raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father. He equates Christ's resurrection with your spiritual resurrection. And so Paul uses this passive nature in which you have been saved to show that you have power now over sin because you, were, you died and you were buried and resurrected with Christ. He also shows our positional power over sin. He goes on, verse 5 through 10, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Understand what Paul has not done yet. Paul didn't say, Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? by no means remember the ten commandments you shall have no other gods before me remember the sabbath day to keep it holy, honor your father and mother don't kill, don't steal don't commit adultery Like Paul doesn't go into the list of do's and don'ts right? Paul, Paul doesn't go back to that law here in order to say you shouldn't sin. Rather, he goes into the description of who you are. He goes into the description of who you are because Paul understands that if all you do all day long is think about the rules that you shouldn't break, that what's going to happen is you're going to break every one of the rules, right? Like how many of you, when you were a kid, your mom said, don't touch that, it's hot, and then you touched it. Because that's all you could think about, right? You're like, is it really hot? How hot is it? Is it going to burn me hot? Or is she just saying that because she doesn't want me to touch it, right? We don't trust our parents, right? And so the minute they say don't do something, we got to do it, right? That's our sin nature. We just, we got to do it because they said don't. It could have been something you didn't even want to do, but mom just said hey, by the way, don't touch that. It's hot. And now you're like, well, I wasn't even thinking about it. But now, how hot is it? <laughs> right? So, so Paul understands that that's how the human nature works. When we hear a list of rules, we, event, we, we automatically want to start breaking the rules. Or if we think about the rules all the time, that's what we're going to do. But rather, he says, no, think about who you are in Christ. Think about your position in Christ. We have positional power over sin. And one of my favorite verses in all the New Testament is here in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. A very good friend of mine and one of my um, first theology professors gave a great exposition of this verse and this idea of being united with Christ. This word united here in the Greek is symphytos. And the word is only used in this verse. All throughout the New Testament, this is the only place it's used. So I think it has some significance in the point that paul's trying to make so i'm going to read a letter to a friend that my professor wrote explaining this verse to them he just wanted to encourage them in the faith and um so he wrote this letter And i want you to listen what he writes i would like to encourage you to pause and consider how you would define the spiritual life of the believer to be sure the spiritual life has been equated with activities and obligations that exemplify and honor jesus christ in other words Our spiritual life has been equated with having a devotion every day, having a quiet time, spending time in the Word, praying, going to church, coming to Bible study. We've got these disciplines or these things that we do that define our spiritual life. And he says, I understand that those exemplify and they honor Jesus Christ. But as good as these responsibilities are, they can be done by the unregenerate. In other words, they can be done by the unsaved. An unsaved person can go to church every week, right? and still be unsaved an unsaved person can read their bible every day and still be unsaved so he says as good as those things are they can be done by the unsaved they don't distinguish the sinner from the saint rather the spiritual life of the believer is the life of jesus christ reproduced in the child of god by means of the holy spirit in other words christian living is jesus christ living in and through me Neil Anderson, a scholar, states thanks to the incredible redemptive work of Christ in your life your old self has been replaced by a new self governed by a new nature which wasn't there before. Your old self was destroyed in the death of Christ and your new self sprang to life in the resurrection of Christ. The new life which characterizes your new self is nothing less than the life of Jesus Christ implanted in you. So me has gone and Christ now lives in me. Paul in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. When you trust Christ, you are gone. The old self is crucified and is dead, and the new self has come in Christ. He goes on, in a very real sense, what is true of Christ is now true of us as believers. Hear that. What's true of Christ is now true of You, when Christ comes and invades your heart. We are inseparably linked with God through Christ. The reality of this union was evident when Christ confronted Saul on the road to Damascus. Saul had been persecuting the followers of Christ. But Christ said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And to persecute Christians was to persecute Christ himself. No union can be more vital and personal. In fact, he gave his personal assurance to the disciples that he would be in them was also the subject of his high priestly prayer for all believers that being jesus this new relationship would begin with the arrival of the holy spirit unlike any other period in biblical history as believers are able to experience um a unique nearness to god in other words jesus himself has equated himself with his disciples with his people with his church so when jesus confronts paul who was then saul on the road to Damascus, he says why are you persecuting me was paul persecuting jesus not physically the person of Christ in his presence he wasn't persecuting. But he was persecuting Christ's church. And Christ equated his church with himself. So we have this unique union with Christ. The foundation for this definition flows from the greatest biblical truth ever discovered. As I consider what it means to be spiritual. Especially in, my view, or my, in view of my own shortcomings, failures, and regrets. In Romans six five the Apostle Paul says that we are united or joined together in Christ in both his death and shall be in his resurrection. So this is where we get to Romans six five The Greek word for the united together is Suphas this word only occurs here in the Greek New Testament and it means to plant in union. Suphas describes two plants that have grown together whereby they are not only intertwined but united the two become one completely inseparable so this greek word carries with it this gardening term that two seeds are planted together and as they grow they grow together becoming one plant that can't be separated and in the same way we are united to christ he has grown in our hearts in such a way that we cannot be separated He goes on in his letter but consider to whom are you united you are united to the one and only triune god who is the sum total of his infinite perfections (sighs) okay as mysterious as this biblical truth is you have to count it to be true jesus christ is in you and you are in jesus christ You are in Christ in terms of your position, your possessions, safekeeping, and your association, and Christ is in you, giving you life, character, and dynamic for conduct. The best illustrations I've ever seen on the issue were in the book titled Grace by Lewis Berry Chafer, founder of Dallas Seminary. He says this, the bird is in the air, and the air is in the bird. Right? The bird flies in the air, but the air is in the bird united, right? The fish is in the sea and the sea is in the fish. Right? So these things are united. The iron is in the fire and the fire is in the iron. These are examples of Christ being in us and we being in Christ. If we are to describe this biblical truth further, we might say, number one, it is a two-way union with Christ. Jesus said, on that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. Paul cited this two-way relationship as the essence of his life. I have been crucified with Christ. No longer I live, but Christ lives in me. Number two, it's a spiritual union with Christ. It's not only this two-way union, but it's a spiritual union. The believer's union with Christ is often spoke of as mystical. Spiritual is a preferable term, but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.17 Contrary to some cults, we do not become God. Rather, we are unique individuals indwelt by means of the Holy Spirit. So, some cults teach that you become God. Mormonism teaches you become God. Buddhism teaches you become A type of God. So we don't teach that. We're united with God in a unique and special way. Number three, it's a dynamic union with Christ. Our union with Christ is a vibrant, living connection. Jesus used the figure of a vine and branches to express this relationship in John 15. As the life flows from the vine into the branches, so Christ's life flows into and through the believer. Growth and fruitfulness are both the evidence and the outcome of this relationship. Thus, the very life of Christ is experienced by and expressed through you as a believer. So Christ uses this example that we are the branches and he is the vine. So we are receiving life from him. If you cut a branch off of the vine, what happens? branch dies right and so we are united to christ in such a way that he is the one who is giving us life and who is causing fruit to grow on the branch if the branch falls off is broken off is it going to grow fruit laying on the ground no it has to be connected to the vine right i heard a great example last week at a conference ben stewart who leads breakaway ministries at a and m gave this example um we have an aggie in the back um Ben Stewart gave a great example. When we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, all those things, it would be wrong for me to tell you, okay, if you have the fruit of Spirit, now you need to go love people. You need to go be gentle with people. You need to have joy. You need to have patience. Because in Galatians 5, Paul doesn't give an imperative or a command to say, go love. He says these are fruit of the Spirit. So if I asked Anna Marie, what's your favorite fruit? Um, Watermelon. Watermelon. And how long does it take you to grow a watermelon on your hand? (laughs) Never. You can't grow a watermelon on your hand, right? Oh yeah, okay, yeah. So if, if I told Anna Marie to grow... A watermelon or a pineapple, you said, on your hand. A kiwi. You you couldn't do that, right? And it's the same with the fruit of the spirit. I can't grow that fruit. Only the spirit can grow that fruit. If Anna Marie wants a watermelon, she's gonna have to go to a watermelon patch and get it, or go to the store and get it. She has to go to the source of the watermelon, right? In the same way we have to go to the source of the spirit. We go to the Holy Spirit. We pray, right? We live as those who have been united with Christ by the Holy Spirit. And he produces the fruit in us. It's not something that we do. Paul follows the whole list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. By saying now you go walk with Christ. Or walk in Christ. That's the command. Is to walk in Christ. To live in Christ. He'll produce the fruit. Not for you to go trying to produce the fruit. Number four, it's a corporate union with Jesus Christ. In other words, this is done with other people. We're not only united with Christ as individuals, but we are united into a body of believers. The Holy Spirit indwells each individual believer. Thus, as believers, we are placed into union with one another as well as with Christ. So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Romans twelve five. We're not only united with Christ individually, we all who possess his spirit are united together in Christ and create one body. Number five, it is a permanent union with Christ salvation sanctification and glorification are all assured by God's eternal plan they are as certain as the character of God for those God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those he predestined he also called those he called he also justified and those he justified he glorified Romans eight twenty nine and 30 nothing can separate you from this vital union with Christ It is assured. It is a permanent union with Christ. In closing, he says, we might ask, why aren't we more spiritual than we are right now? If all of these things are true, then why am I not growing? Why am I not more spiritual? Suffice to say, it is not because of capacity. In other words, it's not because you lack the ability to be more spiritual than you are. I contend it has to do with our moment by moment willingness to allow Jesus to live through us. Words like abide, be controlled, be transformed, and confession of sin are biblical terms I would ponder as I explore how to unpack the dynamic union in my daily life. But most of all, I would think that the key to experiencing true spirituality is to love the God of the Bible fervently. As we love him fervently, he, we will serve him faithfully. No matter how steep, rocky, muddy, dry, humid, hot, or cold the path becomes, always remember that Jesus is not merely with you. He is in you. And that ends his letter. So we overcome sin, the power of sin, by our Position, Which is, we are united with Christ. You sin not because you can't control it. If you're united with Christ, you can control it. You sin because you choose to sin. Whereas before you had faith in Christ, you were a slave, Paul says. Now we who have died and been raised we are no longer slaves but we are free to live verse 7 for one who has died has been set free from sin now if we have died with christ we believe that we will also live with him and we know that christ being raised from the dead will never die again and death no longer has dominion over him for the death he died he died to sin once for all but the life he lives he lives to god so we have this position in christ That we are no longer slaves to sin. How many of you think it would be crazy for someone who had been in prison and who had now been freed to go and live a nice life to stay in prison? Because they liked the hard beds and they liked the people there and they liked having to go to the bathroom on a toilet that's kind of like out in the middle of their cell. Would that be crazy? Or would that be cool? Like, just stay in prison. (laughs) Right? But every time we go back to our sin, that's what we say with our life. Because we once were enslaved to our sin. We were once imprisoned by our sin. But now, by faith in Christ, we have been set free, but we constantly choose to go back to the cell and to live enslaved and imprisoned to our own sin. When Christ has given us a new life and has given us freedom to go and live apart from our sin. We now have power over our sin. So what do we do with that? Verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. First thing you have to do is consider yourself dead to sin. You first have to consider yourself. Does, does that mean sit around and ponder whether or not you are dead to sin? Maybe for some of you it might. If you haven't put your faith in Christ, it might involve you considering, am I saved? Have I put my faith in Christ? Am I new creation? Or is that something I still need to do? For those of you who know that that is the case, then you must consider it and count it to be true. That's what this word here in the Greek actually means. You count this thing to be true. I am united with Christ. I am no longer a slave to my sin. I have died to it. I have been raised to walk in a new life with Christ. I must count that to be true. That goes a long way. Because when you live as someone who is free, you live differently than someone who is enslaved. When you consider that you are a saint rather than a sinner, you may live life differently. You may look at the choices that you make differently. Verse 12. Not only do you consider it... Verse 12, he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Paul says, Don't let sin be your master. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Don't put yourselves in situations where you know you'll be tempted into sin. There are some situations that come upon us and we're tempted, but there are other situations where we tempt ourselves, right? Or we put ourselves in a place to be tempted. In other words, guys and girls, don't find yourself in a bedroom with somebody of the opposite sex. That's It's pretty clear that you're going to be tempted in that situation, right? Don't be on the computer with nobody around after midnight. That's probably putting yourself in a good place to be tempted. Right? All these things that we cause ourselves to be tempted by putting ourselves in these situations. Paul said, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. You have the power over that. So don't let it control you. Don't let it be master over you. But he doesn't end there with the don't. Remember, Paul continually comes back to, okay, what do you do? Rather than thinking about the law and all the things that you shouldn't do, he tells us about our position in Christ and who we are in Christ. And then he goes on here in verse 13. He says, Don't present your members to, uh, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness in other words rather than thinking about all the time what you shouldn't be doing think about what you should be doing it's presenting yourself to God as workers of righteousness so rather than being on your computer after midnight when you're all alone how about open your Bible right Consider things that you can do to serve others. Maybe write a note of encouragement to one of your brothers or your sisters here in this room. Pray for one another. Do things that will glorify God and that would encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ rather than being idle and thinking about all the things that you shouldn't do and then you are tempted to do them. And then verse 14, Paul ends this this whole paragraph or this whole thought with this word in verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Paul assures us in the very end, sin won't have dominion over you. No matter what you do with this, if you are... Christ, and Christ is yours, sin won't have dominion. And notice he puts it in the future. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. There will come a time when Christ will return and vanquish sin for good. And we will be free from the very presence of sin. It will not have dominion over us because we are not under the law, but we are under grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the position that we have in Christ. I pray that this week we would consider ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. God, I pray that we would desire you more than we desire popularity. I pray that we would desire you more than we desire any kind of fame or... Got any kind of status or salary God I pray that we would value you over a girl or a boy God I pray that you would draw our affections to Christ and Christ alone we would consider ourselves united with him that we would live as those who are united with him. And I pray that you would continue to work by your power through us to conform us to the image of Christ.